Let's dig into the last part of our series and the It's Complicated series. Part four, marriage, divorce, and the gospel. All right. It's going to be a fun one today. You like that one, Dave. I knew it. See, Dave, right? he's always with me. If you would turn with me in your Bibles or pull them up on your phones, wherever you have them. Genesis chapter one. This is the chapter most of you have read 1,500 times. Every time you felt guilty about not reading your Bible, you started back here, right? And you read Genesis 1 over and over and over again, so this should be familiar to all of us. I always feel bad for the people who start in Genesis who have never, never read their Bible. Chapter 1 is pretty good. You start getting into like chapter 2 and 3 and you're like, wait a minute. There's some wacky stuff in here, man. Like where did these demon giants come from? And where did all these other people come from? And what, why did they do that? It gets, it gets kind of crazy right out of the gate. I remember, you know, when I started doing the one-year Bible a couple years ago, I'd always read through there. And I would, even after all my years of Bible college and, and seminary study and everything else, I always end up with a lot of questions. So, um, but it's fun to kind of dig into that stuff and, and see what kind of things we can find out. So we're going to go there this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and our uh, message on marriage, divorce, and the gospel And we're going to read this out loud together. It has been getting better and better every week. The group reading in here has just been awesome. So we're going to do this again this morning. Um, I'm a little bit under the weather. I apologize for that. One of the ladies back in the nurse, I was back uh, visiting with uh, some of our nursery and preschool team this morning. And the the one lady goes, kind of sound like Barry White this morning. My wife just rolls her eyes. She's like, he's not Barry White. So um, I said, well, we are talking about marriage and divorce and all that stuff today. So I'm off to a great start this morning. My wife said, he's not Barry White. So um, here we go. We're going to read together this morning. That's the end of the jokes today. The rest of it's serious. So if that didn't do it for you, you'll have to wait till next week. But here we go. Let's read out loud together. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Have you ever wondered how um, certain things or stores or products got their name? There's a few things floating around out there. I'm like, that's an, sometimes it's pretty obvious why something got its name. But, you know, I was kind of doing some, some outside reading on this topic this week. And, um, you know, I came across a, a few of these things that I thought would be interesting to, to share with you. Um, <clears throat> around World War II, there is this guy named Glenn Bell pretty ordinary name and he decided he was going to open up his own burger stand and he came up with this really creative name you ready for this bell's burger stand isn't that creative marketing genius 
Bell's Burger Stand. And he opens up this burger stand. And do you know what he specialized in in his burger stand? Burgers. Okay, mind blown yet? Okay, you're with me. His problem was he ran into some stiff competition, competition from another burger stand in his neighborhood run by these guys with the last name of McDonald. And so a few months in, old Glenn Bell recognized that he was not going to win market share away from these McDonald guys. He thought they had something going on. So he had to go back in the laboratory and think, you know, maybe burgers isn't the way to go. And he came up with this idea. I'm not going to do a burger stand. I'm going to make tacos. And so uh, some of you are with me already. Oh, you got your thinking caps on a quick crowd today. It's going to be great. Yes, he decided to make tacos and came up, went back and thought, you know, he thought and thought and thought, what should I name my restaurant? And he came up with the name Taco Bell, right? So this is how Taco Bell gets its name, right? Very creative, but I mean, he just had this idea. If, he, if he's going to be the proprietary guy, the inventor, the entrepreneur, he gets to name it. So he came up with, with Taco Bell. Have you ever wondered how many ice cream fans do we have in the house? Okay, I love Love ice cream. Love ice cream. Um, you know, Ben and Jerry's, that was too easy. So I, have you ever wondered about the name haagen How they came up with the name haagen Have any of you ever looked up what it actually means or what language it's in? Okay, I heard German. Close, but, but also wrong. Swiss. Dutch. Yiddish. Okay. Mayhaps, all right. Um, actually, the inventors of haagen invented their own language, which is absolutely nonsense, and they choose two words that didn't exist, Hagen and Dawes. They mean nothing. They are made-up words because they wanted them to sound Scandinavian and premium. So they made up their own language, they made up their own words, they smashed two of them together and said, haagen is going to be the name of our yogurt because it sounds expensive and will make a lot of money. And they were right. So if you make up an ice cream, you also get to make up your own language. You can call it that, and no one can rename it because you get the right to name it if it's your own. Then there was this other one. How about the popsicle? You ever wonder how we got the word popsicle? There's a lot of different people who claim, lay claim to inventing the popsicle, but I thought of uh, Jonathan Tawney. Jonathan and Tawney this morning, the actual inventor of the popsicle's name was Frank Epperson. So I don't know if you have a Frank Epperson in your life, Jonathan and Tony, you may want to look it up because he's, he's, he's done well. He initially patented this under the name the Epsicle Ice Pop. That was the patent that he had on this. And he said, I'm going to sell a lot of these Epsicle Ice Pops. He kept his name in there. Um, but as he began to age and his kids took over more of the business, they said, you know, we want to we want to keep Pop Pop in mind in the future. So they changed it from Epsicle to Popsicle, meaning Pops, Grand Pops, Sickle. They jammed it together called Popsicle, and that's how we got the name. So you, what I'm driving at here is that there's some kind of universally agreed upon principle that I think we all pretty much agree on. If you, if you invent it, you have the right to name it, right? If you create it, you get to name it. If you design it, you get to define it. My wife and I are expecting, um, expecting a, a baby here in February. And as much as we love you and as much as our family has opinions, they don't get to name my baby. We get to name our baby. 
The last go-around, when we went to have the, the sonogram, my wife, or, or the ultrasound, I get them confused. The thing where you look at the little picture and you see this little thing, whatever you call it, ultrasound, we'll work with that. Okay. When we found out whether, it was a, whether our baby was a boy or a girl, my wife was so convinced the first time around that it was a girl. And I was, like, on board with this and everything else. I did not realize that deep within me, maybe there was a part of me that wasn't being honest with myself. I was kind of hoping for a boy. I definitely didn't voice it. That would not have been sensitive. We're talking about marriage. That wouldn't have been a good idea. So we're in there, and they say, are you ready to find out what it is? And we're like, we're ready to find out. And she says, it's a boy. And without even recognizing it, what I did, I'm standing there with my wife, and I go, yeah! (laughs) Come on! I, like, started pointing at myself as though, like, I just scored a touchdown or something. And my wife goes, oh. And I'm, oh, I mean, you all right with this, babe? And, and at the time, I mean, I'm just looking at, you know, the little picture in there, and it's really active, and the little boy Chase is in there moving around. I was like, you know what, babe, can we call the baby Chase? He just looks like a Chase. He's so active. And to this day, my son has not stopped moving. So my wife agreed to call him to name our son Chase. This next one, I'm going to get next to no influence because I, whatever I named the baby, he took on that personality and it has worn the both of us out. So I, but the reality is we're going to get to name the baby because we created the baby. For those of you that don't understand that, we'll, there'll be a discussion on that later that I will not lead. Um, but the reality is you don't get to name our baby, we get to name our baby. If you invent something, you get to name it. You get to define it. You get to design it. Here's the point. And our big idea for the day, this is what I want to drive home. The big idea is that God designed marriage. We just read it. God designed it. He invented it. He created it. Adam didn't. Man didn't. God did. And if God designs it, he gets to define it. Amen? A little weak. If God designs it, who gets to define it? God does. But, you know, we have this long-running history with God of trying to constantly redefine and reinterpret what He designs to fit what we think it should be. Not just about marriage, but about everything that God created. So this morning, what I really want to go after, because there's so much that we could say about marriage, so much about divorce and remarriage, so many things to say, and I want to get myself out of the pressure of feeling like in the next, what do I have, seven and 20, 27 minutes or less, I can't follow every possible uh, issue involved here, but it's something we need to talk about. But really, when I was studying through this over the last few weeks, I really feel like this is the one thing I want you to understand we have to come to terms with. If you agree that God made something, then you also have to accept that if he made it, he gets to define it, not us. He gets to put it in order, not us. It's his privilege as the creator, as the inventor, to say, this is the definition of what I invented, You and I don't get to choose what Taco Bell is named. We accept that. We don't get to choose the name of McDonald's. We accept that. We didn't create it. We didn't pay for the right to name it. God put this idea, this covenant, this relationship of marriage in motion. He's also been very clear in his word in the Bible, beginning in Genesis 1, of what marriage is and what it isn't, how he defines it. It's really up to you and I to say this. If I hold to the fact that God is a creator, if that's the basis of my faith in him, if I say I want salvation, and a part of that I say I believe in God, I believe he is the creator, I believe he has the son of Jesus Christ, what, Christ, that he is the Lord, what you also say is I agree to submit to his definition for everything. What you can't do 
is say, I agree and I believe that God is the creator, and I also agree that I get to define his creation. Because the moment you say, I get to define what God created, you strip him of his right of being the creator. And you can't both pursue a God who can save you and a God that you get to define. You can't do both. So if you come to a place where you say, I accept that God's the creator, that he is the Lord of lords, he is the king of kings, there's nobody supreme, the way you walk that out, the proof of that, is that you support and you live by and you submit to how he defines things. So let's look this morning a little bit at how God defines marriage. I just want you to see, we're going to be in Genesis 1 this morning, and you know both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament quote this passage. It's a very, very, very important passage in the Bible about marriage. But I want you to know everything in Genesis chapter 1 was leading up to marriage. God said, he looked down at Adam and said, it's the only thing that, you know, really that God doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he, everything in Genesis chapter 1, it says God saw it and it was good. And he saw it and it was good. And then he saw something that wasn't good. The aloneness of Adam was what God saw. And he said, that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. Notice Adam didn't go to God and say, God, uh, appreciate the rhinoceri and the hippopotami, however you pluralize those words, and the, and the giraffes and all these other great words I came up with and these cool animals with stripes and polka dots, and I don't know if there's unicorns or dinosaurs. We'll let you hash that out later. But, you know, there are all these animals. But I'm lonely. You forgot about me. The Bible doesn't say that man initiated the conversation. The Bible says God noticed this. And God came up with this idea of marriage. And God came up with the idea of, you know, Adam looks to be alone. I'm going to make a helper, so I'm going to make him another man. He didn't. He made him a woman for them to come together in marriage. This is how God designed it. Everything in this chapter, it says, when God noticed that Adam was alone, then he made the animals and brought them to him and named them. And the animals weren't the companion that would make Adam complete. Creation wasn't the companion that would make Adam complete. The aloneness was resolved when God brought to him a woman. And she became his wife. So everything in Genesis chapter 1 is leading up to marriage. So let's look at this briefly this morning. How does the Bible define marriage to us? I'm going to give you, there's more than this, but let me just give you some brief definitions. And those of you that think that this is not going to go deeper, address all the issues, they're all here. So listen very carefully, and we'll, and we'll walk through this together this morning. Number one, here's how the Bible defines marriage to us. Let me give you one of the parts of the definition. Marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. Marriage as a covenant. We see it in Genesis 1, but we see it very specifically later on in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 2 in an exchange between God and Israel. Here's what he says. One of the reasons why there was distance in the relationship between Israel and God was because they had warped over these few thousand years between Genesis and Malachi. They had fought God on his definition of marriage. There was bigamy. There was polygamy. There was, that means, you know, one husband or one wife with multiple partners. There was there were husbands with multiple wives. There was adultery. Divorce was way too easy. The husband could divorce the wife. The wife couldn't divorce the husband. All the husband had to do to divorce the wife was write her a bill of divorce. And there's all these issues going on in marriage. And it broke God's heart because that wasn't his intention. <clears throat> and one of the reasons that Israel felt so distant from God, God enlightens them here in Malachi 2. And here's, here's what he says. Here's one of the reasons why that there was a gap in the intimacy between God and his people. He says, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. I want you to understand that the covenant, what a covenant is, it's the highest of all the different relationship expressions you can have in the Bible. Covenant is the highest. It is the most sacred. 
It is the most holy. It is the most binding. And we could talk a lot about what a covenant is. Covenant is, it is a contract, but it's more than a contract. It's more than just a legal business arrangement. Covenant is supposed to be holy because there's a betweenness about covenant. There's a beforeness about covenant. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to establish a covenant, you had to have at least two parties who came together. And it was understood that in the Hebrew tradition, not only was that covenant before you, but that you had witnesses there. The understanding was that a covenant was between you and the other person or persons you were in covenant with and with God. All parties came together in this, that you were bound together, that it was holy before the Lord and it was witnessed by other people. And the point of them witnessing the covenant was so that if they ever saw one or the other party migrating away from the covenant agreement, that they would intervene in that and make sure the covenant didn't dissolve. Do you understand that those elements are still in place in most traditional sacred wedding ceremonies? We're just not thinking about it that way. Do you understand that when someone invites you to to attend their wedding, you become a witness to a covenant? Do you understand you're volunteering to say, I'm here not only to bring them a present and eat a good meal and dance the night away, I'm here because I'm showing by my attendance that if there's ever an issue in this marriage, if I see these two wandering away from covenant, I'm saying I'm going to volunteer to be a witness to the covenant and I'm going to step in and do everything that I can to help that covenant be preserved. Have you ever thought about that? Have you understood that when they stand, when a, when, a, when a bride and a groom stand before God and before a minister, they're making a sacred pledge to one another that's supposed to be unbroken until death. And so covenant is this idea that God carries through in his definition of marriage throughout the Bible. A covenant is a sacred binding together of two or more parties. Now let's be very specific about what we see that, that, that marriage is based in Genesis 1. The covenant of marriage, as God instituted, is to be between one man. Everybody listening? So be clear. Between one man and one woman and God. Here's what the Bible says. That's how God defines marriage. One man, one woman, committed to one another before God. Any other civil union is not recognized by God as marriage. Because it doesn't fit the definition. Regardless of what the law says, regardless of what public opinion says and how we try to define what marriage is, when God views it, any other type of union or coming together, God does not recognize as a biblically founded marriage because it doesn't fit the definition of one man, one woman. This is what it says. Husband and wife, man and woman. Marriage is between one man and one woman. So that what that means is that, I'll just be very clear, same-sex marriage is not recognized as a sacred union in God's kingdom. Bigamy or polygamy, no matter how good the reality show is, is not recognized as a sacred union in God's kingdom. But I also want you to recognize this. Divorce is never commanded, and divorce is never instructed in God's kingdom. One of the things that I worry about is that in this day and age, there's a lot of pressure on the evangelical church to come down really hard on same-sex marriage and to be very, very, very clear about where the Bible stands on that. And, and, and quite frankly, it could very much change in the day and age where I live and where I might not even be as clear as I am this morning without financial penalty or without legal penalty for saying what I say. So I just want to be very clear that this is what the Bible teaches. God defined it, not me. God said this is how it is supposed to be, not me. 
However, the problem, I, I, what I'm seeing in the evangelical churches, is, is that we're coming down really, really, really heavily on same-sex marriage and bigamy and polygamy, but we've almost given up on talking about divorce. We've almost given up on talking about remarriage and what the Bible says about that because we're so, we're so terrified that when we stand up in our own church, that 50%, 60% of the people in our congregation, if we really held to what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage, would be so offended that they'd leave. And we still need to talk about, we can't heavily peddle on the idea of there's, you know, same-sex marriage without also talking about what God says to heterosexual couples in marriage as well, right? Okay, six of you are with me on that one. <laughs> but are we going to be disciples or not? Are we going to define, we're going to pick the parts of the definition that, that we don't struggle with and really hammer those hard and then not talk about the ones that apply to us directly? Let's look at what the Bible says about divorce. Before we do that, I'll give you a chance to breathe. Let's look at dating and engagement. We're still, under, we're still under this category. The Bible doesn't say a lot about dating, does it? You know why? Different social culture back in that day than it was in our day. The whole process of dating and courtship and engagement evolved a little bit between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of the Old Testament, while it's true that in the Old Testament, a lot of marriages were arranged by the parents, there were still marriages that were based out of love. There were still marriages in the Old Testament that were based out of two people who were not assigned to be in a relationship by their parents finding each other and falling in love and getting married. Um, But we don't have a lot of verses that tell us about what dating should or shouldn't be, what engagement should or shouldn't be. And yet it's one of the questions that I get asked a whole lot, um, you know, about about dating and marriage. So, um, you know, the question I get is, you know, what should a dating relationship look like and how long should one date before they get engaged and how long should one be engaged before they get married? Um, you know, some of that boils down into opinions, but I can give you a couple principles to go on real quick. Because here's the reality. Um, not all of us in the room are married. Not all of us in the room will be married. Some of us are not married anymore. Some of, some of us this morning are unmarried. Some of us are single. Some of us were married and now we're not married. Some of us are widowed. Or, or, there's all kinds of different scenarios here in the room this morning, but there's something here, I believe, for all of us. In fact, if you read the writings of Paul, Paul would say the very... Paul was so committed to Christ that he said, the most important thing I could ever do is ministry. The most important thing I could ever do is follow after Christ. And here's how Paul puts things in order. He basically says this, if you really want to live a fully optimized life and give the most of yourself that you can to ministry, here's the simplest way to do it. Don't get married. Because the moment you get married, you introduce a new priority that's going to have to come before your ministry. And so Paul kind of says, listen, if at all possible, remain single and celibate. Yay. <laughs> right? He says that's a gift from God. He says the next best thing is if you were divorced, don't get married again and be celibate. You know why? Not because he's trying to remove from you all the, the, the wonders of marriage. What he's saying is, because then you could really go at, you know how much time you could give to ministry? You know how much time you could give to getting to know God without having to balance all these priorities out? He says, but if those two things really don't work for you, then get married. That's how Paul talks. He's not saying that marriage is terrible or that it's the third best thing. What he's doing is he's elevating this idea of saying that marriage, if you're not married, that there's something functionally wrong with you. He's trying to dash that. You know, he's trying to nip that thing right in the bud. And he's, what he's saying is, is really, you know, marriage is a wonderful thing, but it also introduces a new priority structure. And there are some complexities. There are some sacrifices and some concessions and some rights you give up when you get married. 
And he's saying it's, it's, it's just simpler if you can remain single and celibate, but recognizing that that's very few people that really want that or are able to do that, he puts it back in order. So what does the Bible say about dating? Not a whole lot, but we know this. We know this, that um, cohabitation or living together before marriage is not endorsed by the Bible because mar- part of marriage, the way that they defined it, the way that God defined it, is that for this cause, a man and a woman leave father and mother. And in that day and age, it meant that's when they moved out and started living together, not before not as a test drive, not as a way to save on your taxes or an economic shortcut, that that's out of bounds for dating. For, for dating. Also, the Bible teaches and Jesus affirms that there is no sex outside of covenant. That means if you are married, one man, one woman in marriage, if you're married, there is no sex outside of covenant. And if you read Paul, there should be sex inside of covenant and only inside of covenant. That also means if you're not in a marriage covenant, there should be no sex and what I get a lot of time is, but pastor, that's way too hard. There must be another way. That's way too difficult. It is difficult. It's very difficult. But there's something the Bible says called self-control. And what the Bible also teaches is that if you're ever going to really give yourself to self-control and be able to control those sexual desires outside of covenant, you have to give those sexual desires to God and you have to die to them. And what you say is this, God, I give my desires to you for a spouse or for an active sex life, or for a satisfying sex life. I'm outside of covenant. I give those desires to you, and I die to them. And I trust you that one of two things are going to happen. You're either you're going to give those desires back to me in a new way where they get reborn in my heart, and it's either going to manifest in a spouse, or it's going to manifest in a new level of peace and comfort and fulfillment that I never had before because I bring those to you, and, 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 I, die, and I die to those things. It is possible. It's not easy, but it is possible to have self-control, and to honor God by sanctifying those sexual desires we have. Not that he takes them away. You're saying I should be asexual, now we're back into another whole discussion. Absolutely not. What I'm saying is we have to recognize that those desires are central to who we are as human beings. And they're very powerful desires, and they're wanted to be fulfilled. But outside of the covenant of marriage, there is judgment and there is sin if we engage in sexual acts outside of marriage with somebody that we're not in covenant with. So it's difficult, and there's a whole message on that too. But I want you to know that it's not hopeless and it's not impossible for us to be able to live in a sense of self-control and healthiness and still have a healthy understanding of who we are sexually and our sexual identity, even if we're not inside of covenant. Okay, so a couple parameters on that. Well, how long should I be engaged? Or how do I know when I should get engaged? That's a really tough one. I don't want to take the pressure. Um, Here's a great answer. It depends. I like that. It depends case by case. But here's at least I'll be a little more specific. You should be dating long enough to know that you are sure and prepared to be married. You should be dating, <coughs> excuse me, long enough to invest the time and energy in having an objective outside spiritual leader come alongside you and sit with you and the person you want to be married to to lay a proper foundation for a marriage and make sure you've thought through some of the financial and relational and emotional and future goals of your marriage and be involved in that and help you talk through some of those things. You should be engaged long enough to plan a marriage. And not a moment longer and not a moment too soon. I have always taught or believed my opinion when I talk with a lot of couples. Date for a long time, be engaged for a short period of time. Engagement is no man's land for relationships. Engagement is no man's land. Because here's what happens. The Bible talks about, well, I'm really on a tangent here, but maybe I need to say this. The Bible talks about one of the most powerful things that happen, we'll get into this in a moment, is when a, a husband and a wife come together in marriage, they become one. That can happen before you get married. The strong force is pulling you together. If you go real deep spiritually with somebody before you get married, 
that's also going to ignite other areas of that relationship. Because when, you, when a man and a woman come together spiritually, they want to come together physically, and they want to come together emotionally. They want to come together intellectually. And the deeper you go in intimacy before marriage, all those boundaries start to be drawn together. And I have found couples who go too deep together spiritually before covenant that end up going too deep sexually before covenant because all those ways that God designed you to come together are like this force that gets going and starts pulling you together. And all of a sudden, we compromise and let our boundaries down. This is why when you're sure you should be married and you've laid the right foundation, don't be engaged for seven years. It's no man's land. Long enough to plan for a wedding. This is not what the Bible says. This is just my opinion. If you disagree, that's fine. Throw it out and insert your own. But it's just, I've done this for 22 years. From a wealth of experience. Just trust me on this. Spend enough time investing in the foundation of your marriage. Most of the problems that I work with couples through are because they never laid the right foundation for their marriage. They got married. They didn't think through some things. They thought that marriage would be the solution for dating dysfunction. It's not. Marriage is not the solution to all the dating dysfunction. Marriage will magnify the dysfunction. You will find opinions for things when you get married you didn't even know you had opinions about because they existed unchallenged before you shared space and a dresser and a sink with someone else. Okay, so that's a little bit on on dating and engagement. Now, briefly, divorce and remarriage. Here's if I and I have done, I've done about 250 pages of outside reading from about 15 different sources on what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. And they don't all line up. Okay, in fact, you can look at the 3,500 years of history in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You can see that while the definition of marriage never changed. You can see that from the Old Testament to Jesus, their understanding of divorce evolved. From Jesus to Paul, the understanding and the explanation of divorce and remarriage evolved a little bit. And I would say even still today, most pastors, theologians, denominations are still wrestling through exactly what the Bible says as a whole about divorce and remarriage. So if I wrote that all out in a paper, presented it to you, it'd be about 30 pages long. But if I went to the last page and just read to you my summary and my conclusions, here's what it would sound like, okay? Divorce is never commanded, and it's never instructed in the Bible. A Christian should never consider divorce as an option to pursue. We should shun divorce and cling to marriage. However, the Old Testament, Jesus, and the Pauline epistles in the New Testament allow for certain exceptions where divorce is indeed permissible. The biggest thing I could grab out of this is this. Let me use a little analogy or illustration real quick. All of us have a virtual imaginary toolbox, and inside of that toolbox are all the different things you use to pull out to solve problems. If it's disciplining your children, you know you might have whatever you have. You might have warnings, you might have consequences or timeout or whatever it is in your house, removal of privileges, whatever it is. Those of you that are married, those of you that want to be married, those of you that used to be married, those of you that are content where you are in life, you have a toolbox that you can use in your marriage or both now or future. What the Bible says is that a Christian should should never include divorce in their mind as a possible tool in their toolbox if things don't work out. In other words, if you live in your mind saying, you know what, if this doesn't work out, there's always the option of divorce. That's my last resort. That's not thinking properly about the covenant of marriage. It's kind of like saying this. If you've got two people that have dug a deep hole for themselves and they're now 10 feet down in this hole with only their shovels, And they've got a 10-foot ladder in that hole, 
and I say, you got to climb out of there, but you can't use the ladder, they'll think for a few minutes and then ultimately just say, well, we've always got the ladder. You pull that ladder out of there, they'll find a way. The reality is this, as long as you think that divorce is in the back of your mind as a possibility as a believer in a marriage of another believer, as long as you think you can always put that out on the table when things get rough or things get difficult or crisis happens, you'll always default to that as a resort. What the Bible says is you pull that ladder out of the equation. You say, come hell or high water, we made a covenant before God. And the option of things just not working out is not on the table. However, both the Old Testament and Jesus and the New Testament say there are some exceptions where divorce is not commanded or or instructed, but it's permitted without penalty from God. In the Old Testament, it was pretty easy. Um, The Hebrew law allowed, not God's commandment, but the Hebrew law allowed a husband to divorce his wife simply by issuing her a bill of divorce. In the Hebrew law at that time, the woman could not divorce the husband, but the husband could divorce the wife for any reason with just issuing a bill of divorce. And at that point, she was pretty much undesirable. It was a sin to marry her. She couldn't get a job, and most of them had to turn to either poverty or prostitution to make ends meet. Not a good system. And in fact, the Pharisees in Jesus' time start debating what they need to do about this because they're in charge of the law. So they're trying to, they're engaged in opening in a, in a debate, and Jesus is a vocal participant in one of these debates. And as the Pharisees are debating this, one of the Pharisees makes a slightly incorrect statement. He says, well, in the Old Testament, Moses commanded that all a husband had to do was issue his wife a bill of divorce. And Jesus speaks up and says, Moses never commanded that. It was a concession of the law. God's idea, Jesus reaffirms Genesis, was that a husband and wife would leave their father and mother and they would cling together and the two would become one flesh and they would never divorce. Except, and now Jesus redefines and gives an exception. He says, except for the cause of adultery. So in the Old Testament, you have divorce with just issuing a bill of divorce. You have Jesus who comes on the scene and says, no divorce except for adultery. And then about 35 or 40 years later, you have Paul who writes about divorce or remarriage. And Paul affirms what Jesus says. He quotes Genesis again. And he says, no divorce except for adultery or except for what the Bible calls willful desertion. Keep in mind, Paul was reaching a lot of unbelievers who were already married and not both spouses would get saved at one time, especially in Corinth, which was very seedy. It was like like the New Testament version of Las Vegas. Anything and everything went there. And so you had a husband or a wife getting saved and then immediately wanting to go divorce their unbelieving spouse. And Paul said, listen, if your unbelieving spouse still wants to live with you and still wants to be in the marriage relationship, don't divorce them. Pray for them, believe for them you know, reach them. He said, however, if the unbelieving spouse says you have to choose between me and Jesus, then it's okay for them to willfully desert. So what you have is you have an Old Testament definition of divorce. You have a New Testament definition of divorce and marriage. And then you have a Pauline, Paul, definition of divorce and remarriage. It's not like the definition changed, but you could see every few hundred years they had to go back to this and say, we've got new issues now. And we have to try and interpret this absolute statement of no divorce, marriage is a covenant with these weird social exceptions that happen. So where does that make us land today? Well, we still have what the Bible says. Divorce should not be considered as an option for Christians. But I know if I took you around this room this morning and you could listen to some stories, you'd say, listen, Pastor, I'm divorced and that was never what I wanted. I did everything I could to save my marriage, but my spouse didn't cooperate. Am I living now under the judgment of God? The best interpretation I can give you is no. Because, you know, 
were they giving us an exhaustive list of all the possible exceptions? Some people who really hold tight to the Scripture say, yes, it's only for adultery and it's only for willful desertion. But where you land on this is then you say, okay, well, obviously, the Bible never talks about what about a situation where a husband is physically beating his wife? Are you saying that as a pastor, I should say to that wife, listen, you go home to your husband, don't divorce him, don't get out of there, try and work it out when he's obviously sick and he's not abiding by his covenant that he made before, before God? It's tough. It's complicated. But what I always say is this, there are just times when both spouses are no longer working together to preserve the covenant. And you have a spouse who says, I don't want to work back at it. I don't want to be involved in covenant. You can't hold my feet to the fire. I want out. And what did we talk about last week? There's a place I guess you can get to as a believer where you say, you can show me heaven and I don't want it. You can show me God and I'd rather be his enemy than his friend. So the best I can tell you is that for 3,500 years in the Bible, they still never really quite landed on what is all, all the possible ways that divorce is permissible without judgment from God. They still never quite came to a, con- a final conclusion. And I don't know that in the 2,000 years since we've come to a final conclusion either, but I know this, that as, lo- that as long as a husband and a wife who come together in marriage continue to grow in their relationship with Christ, you'll never move in the direction of divorce. All of the permitted exceptions for divorce in the Bible have to do with either a husband or a wife who broke covenant, who are living in disobedience to God, and as a consequence, pushed their marriage in a horrible direction away from covenant. So what I would encourage you to do is this. Grow close to Christ. Keep moving your relationship closer to Christ. I don't want anybody in the room to sit under unnecessary condemnation because of what went on in your past. I will also say this. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin right? We should approach divorce with a sense of we don't want that. Divorce is difficult. How many of us probably, don't raise your hand, how many of us in our own families have been wrecked and stained and, and hurt because of the effects of divorce? Whether it was you personally or somebody in your family or parents. Christians need to fight for our marriages. We need to fight for those relationships to be whole. Friend, if you were hurt and you're still struggling through the effects of a divorce, I want you to receive healing from God today. I want you to receive grace from God today. I want you to receive mercy from God today. I want you to feel whole in Christ. I want you to find your identity rooted in relationship with who he is, not in the status of a relationship. But the Bible comes down very heavily on divorce, not just because of what it does, but because of what it means and what marriage stands for. So it's a little bit about divorce. It's not God's plan for marriage. He hates divorce. He hates the damage that it causes. A Christian should never consider divorce an option, but rather spare no expense or exhaust any path in pursuing redeeming the marriage. I said this before. Let me say it again. I know some people say, listen, pastor, it's too expensive for me to go get counseling. It's too expensive for me to have date nights. We can't afford to invest in our marriage. Investing in your marriage costs money, and so do divorce lawyers. (laughs) You're going to pay one way or the other. You want to pay to go out to Pertucci's? You want to pay somebody to help you divorce? Invest in your marriage. Sign up for the Art of Marriage workshop that's coming up. There's a lot of different things that you can do. Quickly, number two, marriage is a mystery. Marriage is a mystery. 
Ephesians 5, 21 through 22 say this. I read this every time I, I oversee a wedding ceremony. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, as it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul says marriage is a mystery. It is a mystery. It's very much a mystery. The first mystery lies in the design of marriage that God gives us. Here in the Bible, we have a threefold strategy for a marriage. I can roll this out in like three minutes. This is very practical. We get it in Genesis, we get it from Christ, and we get it from Paul. Here are the three parts of what makes a marriage work. And if any one of these things isn't working, it's going to show up in your marriage. Threefold strategy. Number one, have to leave father and mother. Number two, you have to cling to your spouse. And number three, the two must become one. So if a marriage is going to work, number one, you have to leave father and mother. You know what that means? In marriage, you create new boundaries for every existing relationship in your life. Oh my goodness, do I see things blow up. When we never fully understand, the moment you get married, that relationship is now second to all relationships in your life except to God. It is the new priority of your earthly relationships. The obligation to mom and dad now goes farther down the list. The Bible says it goes married. Your relationship with God is number one. Your relationship to your spouse is number two. If you have your relationship with your children, that's number three. Not number two, but number three. And then to family, number four, and then all your other relationships. I watch marriages fall apart because when people got married, they never understood that new boundaries have to be, be inserted in between the way that they relate to mom and dad. You realize that your spouse may still be going to their parents as the confidant for all of your dysfunction. I ask couples in pre-engagement counseling, when you guys get married, when you have a big argument, who are you okay with your spouse talking to other than you? You would be amazed at what happens when the wife gets so fed up with the husband that she picks up the phone and starts talking to her mom about it. Now, we'd like to think that all moms in the house are always going to be objective. All dads in the house are always going to be objective. We're not going to be. But what has to happen is you have to define what are the new boundaries. Listen, when I got married, I found after about a year and a half, I have so many stories about what, uh, what a knucklehead I've been as a husband and how God's tried to help me. One of the things that ate me alive was that I found out that anytime something in the house needed to be fixed, rather than my wife coming to me, problem solver of the house, she called her daddy. Dad, my car's making a strange sound. What should I do? I'm like, hey, I'm over here. I'm the man of the house now. She couldn't understand why it, why it bothered me. Well, I didn't give her a manual of everything that would bother me. She couldn't understand why that ate away at me. I didn't understand why it ate away at me. And after about eight counseling sessions, I finally got to the point where I understood every time she did that, it sent the message to me that she didn't have respect for me as a problem solver, that her daddy was still the standard that I could never live up to. How about holidays where you're supposed to eat dinner? New boundaries, right? How about, fellas, you have, you know, you had some female friends before you got married. Ladies, you had some male friends before you got married. Do you understand all those boundaries have to be redefined when you get married? If you don't redefine them, it will cause problems. Number one, one of the three main causes I see in marriage dysfunction is that they never clearly redefine new boundaries for marriage. You need to talk with your spouse or the person you're considering to be your spouse about what do we talk to mom and dad or friends about? And what are we okay with? Are we going to talk to them about all our finances? 
Are we going to talk to them about how we raise kids? Are we allowed to talk to mom and dad about the arguments we're having with each other when we need a sounding board? Because sometimes you need that. Every relationship in your life needs to be redefined by your marriage. You leave father and mother, and that order gets redefined. There's so much more to say. don't have time to say it. Second thing, you have to join. The Bible says, leave father and mother. The husband joins the wife. They cling together. They cleave to one one each other. And what that means is this. In marriage, the husband and the wife are supposed to be absolutely inseparable. Nothing comes between them. This speaks to the level of intellectual, emotional, (coughs) and spiritual connection that the husband and the wife need to have. Let me help you retire some words from your vocabulary that I had to retire from my vocabulary. Um, I used to think it was helpful in my, if my wife and I had a, uh, an animated disagreement. I used to think my role was to sift through all of the emotion and get to the root of the problem and make a ruling whether this was a legitimate or illegitimate problem and then offer a quick solution. And if it was an illegitimate problem, to then very quickly demonstrate to her why her feelings were either wrong or crazy. This is not helpful. Because if all I saw was emotion that didn't make logical sense to me, my stupid blue brain would conclude that, oh, this is just an overreaction. What she really needs is just someone to tell her to calm down and get over it. I will not be writing a book on on marriage anytime soon. And what she would usually say to me is some version of, why can't you just give me a hug? Why can't you just love me? I'm just like, well, a hug isn't going to fix the, the problem in the kitchen over here. Hug's not going to. What she was really saying is she felt so emotionally disconnected to me. What she didn't want was a solution, an intellectual problem. She wanted to be connected to me emotionally. And this weird thing started happening. When I started slowing down and being like, okay, um, before I offer you a solution, man, I, you've got some strong feelings here. Here's what I think you're feeling. Am I even close? Even if I was wrong, I started to get credit for trying. <laughs> and then this other thing started happening. When she would be really upset about something for which I had no immediate solution, which is stressful to a husband who likes to solve problems, but I would just listen and sometimes even give her a hug. The emotion came down and she'd say, I feel so much better now. And I'm thinking... I didn't solve anything. And then I'm just like, dummy, dummy, dummy. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just, and there, sometimes I found out there really wasn't a problem. There was just some emotion for which she didn't need a solution. She just needed an emotional connection. She needed me to cling to her, not fix her. Marriage is about coming together and saying, I accept you whether or not you ever change. It's not about saying, I will marry you so I can fix you and get you the rest of the way to where I really think you could be. And my wife used to say, you know, I married you because I see all this potential in you. And I'm like, well, what about me now? And, of course, you know, one of our professors at Bible college, we were talking to this about it, was helping us, just said, Kendra, you have to imagine, like, he is just this unmoving block of granite and you are the sandpaper. And so she's still sanding away at my rough edges. But now I see this. God gave her to me to help me be somebody I could be that I couldn't be without her. There are times I do overreact. There are times I underreact. I need to be able to hear that from her. But you can't let anything you need to cling to one another 
Nobody, nothing can come between a husband and wife, and I will find in marriage. If it's not a problem with redefining of the boundaries, it's because there's either an emotional, an intellectual, or a spiritual disconnect. You are not together. You're either clinging to one another or you're slowly drifting apart in one of those areas. You have to have absolute clarity and understanding in relationships. You have to be able to understand not only what someone is thinking, but what they're feeling. And finally, they come together and they're united into one. In marriage, we exchange independence for unity. This is a tough one. This speaks to the union of two previously independent lives into one single life. That's one of the main mysteries of marriage. You take two people who were previously single, who were independent, who are in charge of their own life, and you bring them together, and you have to kind of work this out. But I watch some people who are married still living two independent lives, and it becomes a complex series of negotiations and, and concessions. They're married, but they're independent financially. They're married, but they're independent vocationally. They're married, but they're independent in all of their opinions and all of their attitudes. They're independent spiritually. They're not on the same page about spiritual things, and they're not even trying to get there. Sometimes their marriage are independent physically. They're married, but there's no sex life. The sex life is so deeply dissatisfying that it causes them to drift apart. The mystery is that Bible says in marriage, two formerly independent lives come together. It's now not two lives under one roof. It's one life. And a lot of times I see problems in marriage where you've got two people who are bound together in their mind by a contract, but there's absolutely no togetherness left. And the marriage are not on the same page about hardly anything. One of those other areas is filled with disconnect. You know, at, at soccer the other week, I don't want to embarrass a couple. I think they're here this morning. I ran into another set of parents that was, they, their son's in the same soccer league as mine, and, and, they, and they attend here, very involved here. And, and we were just talking about soccer, and all of a sudden, uh, the wife speaks up, and she says, you know, I'm so bummed I'm going to miss uh, the church service this Sunday. I'll be working back in the nursery, but I'm really interested in what you're saying about this topic. And then she says, my husband, who's standing right there, we went through last month's sermons together on the podcast. We actually went through these sermons together at home. And we were talking about different things. And in my mind, I'm just like, this is a marriage where two lives are coming together as one. You understand, they have small children. They've got busy lives. They work crazy hours. And they make time to talk together and to grow together spiritually. That's why they have this awesome relationship that they have. Not because they're sitting down and listening to my sermons, but because they actually value the coming together. I think about something that, um, that Chelsea Yike said, the, uh, Pastor James's wife, that she said the other week when we were together as a leadership team. We were talking about some of the exchanges you make to be in leadership, and she was just vulnerable to the group of 40 of us, and she said, you know, I have family members that don't understand why I can't, they live all over the country, why I can't be there at different gatherings, why we can't always fly halfway across the country or the whole way to the West Coast to be together. And I feel pressure sometimes. And here's what she said. She said, but I have to tell them all the time, I love my husband so much. And she said, he has his dream job. And the most rewarding thing I can do in my life is to support him and to be here with him as he goes after his dream job. There's such a togetherness there. There's such a unity there. Those two lives are becoming one life. And she says, if he has his dream job, then I'm fulfilled in being alongside of him for that journey. I think about what my wife had to give up in order for us to move here and take on this assignment. She had her dream job. She was a special education teacher in an elementary school. She had worked up to department head. She was the county chairman for the Special Olympics. She was the Georgia Teacher of the Year. She had an awesome job. She made more money than me. It was awesome, right? Whoa, I almost fell off the stage there. Lightning bolt. (laughs) Had just finished her master's degree, and God called us here. And the only way we could make it work is, well, babe, would you be willing to follow me to try and get after my dream job by giving up your job and leading the kids on a Sunday morning? At that time, it was like four kids, five kids. 
It wasn't what she necessarily felt called to do vocationally. She had to give up more than me. But she said, if that's what God feels called for you to do, then it's what it's for us to do. And she gave it up. She sold a whole bunch of our, we sold a whole bunch of our stuff. We crammed it into a pod and we moved from Georgia to here. And here we are today. My wife can't sit down in the front row. I can't look to her for confidence on a Sunday morning. She can't support me in that way. She's supporting me because she's back there pouring her life out into your kids and into my kids on a Sunday morning because that's what it took for us to be able to go after God. How do you get there? Two lives have to become one. Leave your father and mother. Cling to your spouse. Two lives become one. Last one in your notes. Marriage is the display of the gospel. Here's how I want to close. I'll invite our worship team to come back because I've gone over time. So here's how I want to close this. This is this fun verse that you're like, how is the pastor going to preach about this one? Yeah. It says in Genesis, after God brought the husband and the wife together, they were naked in front of each other and they felt no shame. Now relax. Okay. How is it that two people can be completely vulnerable in front of each other and feel no shame? For that matter, how can you ever be completely vulnerable, not just physically? How can you just be completely stripped of all protection and have all of your insecurities, all of your flaws, all of your weaknesses be completely put out on display for somebody else to see and feel no shame? A lot of us spend a lot of our lives trying to cover up the areas of our life that we're insecure about and we don't feel good about. We try and cover them up and hide them for people because we're afraid if they saw those imperfections, they'd reject us. They wouldn't think of us the way that we are. Here's the beautiful message about marriage being a display of the gospel. There's only two reasons why Adam and Eve or why any two people could be completely vulnerable in front of the other and feel no shame. One way is if you're completely 100% perfect. Which probably at the time of Adam and Eve they were. There was no sin, there were no flaws, there were no blemishes. They were probably completely comfortable being perfect. But at the same time, God says that this design for marriage would continue way past even the fall of man. He says, really what marriage is about is a man and a woman coming together and being able to be completely unguarded in front of each other and feel no shame. Well, we're not perfect anymore. We have our flaws. We have our weaknesses. We have our insecurities. So how can you get to a point where you love somebody and trust somebody so much that they can see all that and not reject you? Well, that's the second way. Well, if you're not perfect, the only way you can live with no shame being completely vulnerable to somebody is if you're so confident that the covenant love they have for you is so deep and so strong that they would never reject you even in spite of your weaknesses. That's what the Bible says marriage is about. Marriage is about saying, I'm not looking at my wife as someone who needs to be perfect for me to love her. I love her with a covenant love that's so deep that even with all of her insecurities and even with all of her imperfections and even with, I still love her. And those, I don't require her to be perfect in order for me to love her. I just love her, imperfections and all. This is the message the Bible wants us to see that marriage is a display of the gospel. Because you see, you don't have to be perfect for Jesus to come into union with you. He says, I know all of your insecurities. I know all of your faults. I know all of your blemishes. And none of those things will separate you from the love that I have for you. And God wants to use marriage as a testimony, an illustration of how deep and how wide and how wonderful the love of God really is. What he wants is for the church of the believers to step up and fight for marriages, not only for us to enjoy, but be a testimony of the world of how much God really loves all of us. That we say our marriages don't depend on perfection. Our marriages don't depend on never having an argument. Our marriages don't depend on whether we can make our spouse and the person we think they ought to be. 
our marriage says, I love this person with a covenant love that was birthed in my heart by God. And I love them even with everything that's broken inside of them. All of us have probably something in our life that's broken that needs to be reborn today. Can I encourage you, if you're in a marriage relationship, will you make a step towards investing more heavily in that relationship today? Will you remind yourself of the covenant that you have with that individual? For all of us, is there something in your heart this morning that needs to just die and be reborn? Is there dreams and disappointments or memories that you're holding on to that just need to die and be reborn with healing today? Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know, I need to be in covenant relationship with God and I know that I'm not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? If you're here and you need to start a relationship with Jesus, here's the prayer I want to lead you in praying right now in your seat. If you know you're far from God, if you know that you and God are not in relationship, I want to lead you to salvation through Jesus. It's a simple prayer that says, Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died for my sins and that you're alive today. I accept forgiveness over my sins today from you. I confess that I need forgiveness. I welcome you into my life. And I submit to you as my Lord. I submit to you as creator. I will live by your definition and within your rules. I want to follow you. I want to grow. I want to become like you. And I thank you that now you're living inside of me and I'm new today. In your mighty name I pray, amen.